This podcast will stir your passion. It's Jamily Matters, Pearl Jam Explored. Welcome to another edition of Jamily Matters. We had a we had a really fun, exciting, and interesting guest last time on the show, Billy, and uh, you you're working your magic again with some with some more great booking for Jamily Matters. So, Billy, why don't you bring in our guest and let's let's jump right into it because I'm excited to to kind of delve into what's going on with our guest today. You know, I just keep I keep trying to think back of all of my besties in in the music industry that would make sense for this incredible podcast. Um, and this one, yeah, this one goes way back. I'm I'm stoked. I'm stoked to have our next guest on. Um, I, I think I've said that on the pod quite a bit. I've I've been in the industry now um, about uh, 13 or 14 years or so. Um, but I was fortunate enough early on when I was doing a lot of marketing for um, a distribution company called Red. I got to meet um, someone that I always knew of because of his connection to Loose Groove Records. Um, and uh, then it was great because it was Matt Shea. And Matt Shea came in and he was heading up all things A&R and doing a label deal within Sony, which is also was part of our, um, uh, our distribution companies owned by Sony. But anyways, long story short, I was, uh, I was extremely excited because um, – Right away, I knew Matt's background uh, with Pearl Jam and with Loose Groove and his love for a lot of the same type of music that I always loved. So um, anyways, I was I was stoked early on to get to work with with Matt on several projects that he um, released from his own label. But anyways, uh, that was that was a big, um, long tangent. I, I want to uh, introduce- so much to discuss, though. I mean, <laughs> like, we, got, we, got, we got a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> uh, so that is my introduction. We have Matt Shea on uh, today on the podcast. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I uh, I, I I know. Well, we. Matt and I have never crossed paths, but but Matt's bands and I have crossed paths, and uh, mm-hmm. I remember that we uh, for my station DC one hundred and one we we had the head and the heart who Matt manages, and they uh, they they played a mile marker at a at a, at a, at a at, was it the Marine Corps Marathon the Marine Corps Marathon at one of the one of the DC yep. marathons, and uh, every mile they wanted to have something to kind of keep the runners moving and. And the head and the heart played one of the mile markers, which is probably right. one of the one of the more interesting gigs, or at least the more interesting <laughs> concepts for a gig, Matt. I would imagine, right? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the great thing about that band is they just love to play. So they were literally one of those bands you could set them up anywhere, and they just want to play music. So yeah, they love it. And you guys have been such incredible supporters of that band as well as Pearl Jam and all the bands I've worked with along the way. So thank you, and great to be connecting with you here. And I want to, uh, we want to talk about, you know, what you're doing and, and the artists that you're managing now to kind of, you know, just give music lovers uh, some different avenues and some some more things to listen to. And we'll do that in our second segment. But let's kick off the, the conversation. And, and I, thank, I thank Matt for being on. And I thank Billy, because I, I put Billy on the spot to do two introductions the last two episodes. And uh, for both of you, it, I know that this is uncomfortable because you guys are both behind the scenes people. <laughs> So to have the spotlight right. on both of you is a unique situation. And, uh, Billy, I, I, this is just a kind of a thing to say. You're doing a great job, and I, I so appreciate you. And, Matt, thank you for, for coming from behind the curtain and, and coming on front and center with the, with the mic on the stage. 
Yeah, no doubt. I uh, I don't do a lot of interviews, so bear with me. But um, <laughs> I'm very excited to do it. And you know, I hadn't thought about for a long time my time working on this record. Like there was a, it, it wasn't just this record. There was a window of time when I worked really closely with Pearl Jam in this way as an A and R person. So I'm uh, very excited to delve into it. It's been fun to kind of go back and jog my memory on everything that surrounded the making of that record, signing the band, my period of my career, working with them, all of that stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning. And uh, the the album that Matt has referenced is the self-titled Pearl Jam, the Avocado album, if uh, you want to go in lingo circles. You talked about a window of opportunity to be able to work with Pearl Jam. When did that window begin to open? What was what was the what year was it approximately? And and what was the kind of impetus for the the cracking of the window that it would eventually lead to to you signing the band and then recording an album uh, under your label umbrella? It, I th- you know the whole thing is I think probably a really unique story, and I I I've told this once before to our our friend Aaron Axelson, mm-hmm. uh, who was at Live One Hundred Five at the time. And around the time this record came out, he he did a big thing on air and and talked to me about it. You know, I was a fan of the band first. I was a 18 year old kid graduating high school in Seattle in 1991, so I lived all this music as a fan before I ever worked in the business. So I entered from a very unique perspective that way. And then I was a huge fan of what Stone was doing at his label, at Loose Groove, and uh, I met the people who were running the label for him in 1995 when I was working at my college radio station. A uh, little college radio station in Bellingham, Washington, called KEGS, a uh, station I still love. Everyone should go listen to their Spotify playlist. They're still killing it. Um, but I met them, and they were looking for an intern. And so long story short, I ended up interning at Loose Groove. Uh, in started in 1995, 96. I was there for a year as an intern. But the Loose Groove office was in the Pearl Jam management office at that time. So I was on one side of the hallway working on this cool developing indie label. On the other side of the office was one of the biggest management companies and biggest bands in the world. So it was a really interesting dichotomy and way to enter, enter the business as a fan uh, in the indie label sector and then also working with a, a huge band who had blown up the, the years before that I was a fan of. So it was really interesting that way. So I think that's where it started, really, is that I built this relationship through being in the office every day. I got to know Kelly Curtis and the band guys. And um, so that started it. And then in 2001, as their deal at Sony and Epic was coming up, I had been hired by Clive Davis to be part of his team at J Records. And uh, we were just building the label. We were out there trying to build a rock division of the label. And so I started a conversation with Kelly at that time about what the band was going to do next and introduced Kelly and his team to Clive, um, started some conversations with the band. And it really took three or four years before they were ready to do a deal. So we spent a lot of time together. I would, go to shows, bring Clive to a show, a year would pass. Kelly would come back to New York. We'd do another meeting about what was coming next. And um, I think the band and Kelly were at a crossroads in terms of what they wanted next and what felt right to them. And obviously they had an incredible and long history at at Epic. Um, So they were going through the motions of trying to figure out if they were going to stay there. Uh, They were being approached by everyone else in the business. As you can imagine, they were meeting with, David Geffen and Richard Branson and whoever was out there at the time. So it was a really fascinating process for me as a young kid signing, truthfully, what was one of my first bands that I had signed um, at the major label level and going through it battling against all of these huge icons of the, the music business and, most importantly, having an opportunity to work with one of my favorite bands of all time. So it was really 
a, a very unique situation. I think the interesting thing uh, about that point in time, which which makes you a guest or, or someone that I really want to dive into with, is where Pearl Jam was in their career at that point. And you mentioned that their their deal with with Sony and Epic Records uh, had just expired. That was the deal that had been with them through the launch of the band, and as the band went into the stratosphere. They also were at the point, and they were kind of making it clear in the 90s that they weren't going to do things the traditional way. So when 2001 came up and their contract and their deal was up, I would imagine, and I'm asking you to speculate, uh, that it the kind of the world was their oyster, but did they even really know what they wanted inside that oyster? You know, it was an interesting thing. I think part of the unique perspective I was able to bring is just that I had been around the band for so long. Um, and, you know, as a fan, I understood their ethos as someone who worked in that office and became very friendly, not only friendly with Stone, but Stone's probably my very first mentor, followed closely behind by Kelly. Um, you know, they both took me under their wing. And so I, I learned so much of the business. Like today, I still reference Pearl Jam every day in a conversation somewhere because I learned so much from those guys. Um, so when we entered a conversation I think I started from that perspective of understanding their mindset and what they wanted. And I think it was an interesting time and it extended not only from the conversations about signing, but also through the, the process of that record and also uh, Eddie making the Into the Wild soundtrack, uh, which I worked on with them as well. So through that whole period of time, they were really sponges. It was an interesting thing because I think so many people thought, this is a band that keeps the industry at arm's length and doesn't want input and does things their own way. And that's all true. Like they did create things their own way and really revolutionized so many things in the way they did business. Um, but they were also very hungry to make sure that they were making the right steps in their career. It was a, it was a crossroads period of time. They were, you know, as we started the conversation, they'd been a band for 10, 11 years. So they're kind of a decade into their career. And my whole thing to them was not dissimilar from the way that I now have the experience to work with a lot of the bands I work with who get to this point. It's like, you're at this 10-year marker. How do we get you to 20 and 25 and create the back piece of this legacy for your band? Like, that's where you're at now. And you got to decide what it is that you want as a band. What is it that you want? You know, they were in such a unique situation with radio and their label and press and it was just a really fascinating time to see them kind of open up and take input and they took input for me you know they're a band who doesn't need input on the music they've got it dialed but on the campaign they took a lot of input from me and the team around me um, at the label and it was really refreshing because I think a lot of people wouldn't expect that a band uh, like Pearl Jam was going to take so much input and direction on where to go with the campaign and I think it paid off in, in exactly the way that we all hoped it would in that it did propel them, re-energize their career, open some doors that led to the records that have followed, led to them being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All things that we talked about in the meeting with Clyde the first time we all flew to Seattle, like 10 of us from the label flew to Seattle and met with the band. And I think the band hadn't all been together in the room for a label meeting since they signed Epic Records. I think they had done it once before. So it was a real honor for me that they all gathered and Clyde flew out and 
we had an incredible meeting and this, that's where we started this conversation. Like, I think we really understand better than anybody else how to help you guys get to where you want to go next in your career, which is an interesting thing to say for a band who had sold tens of millions of records around the world and were as big as they were, but they were really at that crossroads point where I think they had to make some decisions about where is this going to go. Right. And I, you know, the, the, the tag that you put onto your answer was exactly where I was going next with my question, you know, and I, I want to play a little bit of devil's advocate, but then I also want you to stroke the ego of my favorite band of all time. You mentioned the, the, the competition that you guys had for the signature of the band um, to produce or to sign the band to, uh, to make more music. But this is 2001. They had made a concerted effort starting in 1990, well, basically with Versus, but then uh, especially in No Code and moving forward to not be the biggest band in the world, which is really what they were in 92, 93, 94, and some of 95. So now we're six years past that point. They succeeded. They weren't the biggest band in the world. How big of a, of a, of a coup or a property was Pearl Jam financially? at the point leading up to you guys signing them. I mean, it's still, they're still Pearl Jam. I mean, and so signing, signing yeah. Pearl Jam is a big deal, but you know, the financials have to work too. So were they a finance, were they a viable property uh, at that point to, to think to yourself, we could, we could make some money off of, of what they're doing as well. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause you know, I was like 30 years old, probably 28 years old, something when we started this conversation. So for me, it was like, I just want to be involved in the band right. too, right? Like that was my job was to be passionate about the music. I loved every record they had made. I'd seen a number of shows at that point, having worked with Stone and had seen behind the curtain all the things we'd talked about. So for me, that was the motivation. I just thought, truthfully, I thought that the band had lost their way a little bit in terms of that all of that noise, and I didn't think that was necessarily the truth. So I kind of went into it thinking they are still one of the big fans in the world. And I think we've seen that proven out, you know, as you were saying that I was just thinking back to being in Mexico city with them, uh, uh, in Thanksgiving a couple of years ago and watching them play to 65,000 people, right. you know? So it was still on this trajectory, even though we have these industry markers, it's like, Oh, they're not getting played on the radio or they don't get the same kind of press or they had built their own thing. It's much more, uh, uh, cousin to the Grateful Dead or something, you know, so it's, they've managed to do, which is why your podcast is so aptly titled. The fans are so incredible. And I don't know if there will ever be another band who can build the kind of following that Pearl Jam has in this era. Uh, but for me, I felt like they are one of the biggest bands in the world and they are capable of being played on the radio still. And we can do it on their terms. Just no one's having that conversation with the band and no one's having that conversation with the industry. It, they caught our label at a really great time. We were very hungry to break artists um, we were breaking a lot of young artists like Maroon 5 and Alicia Keys. And we had a, a number of, of uh, urban and R&B artists who were blowing up and, you know, Clive was doing his thing. But I think also Clive had been through latter phases of careers with so many artists. Santana's one, The Grateful Dead's another. He sat on the board of The Grateful Dead. So Clive really understood this too. He's like, he was undaunted. And I think, we knew from all the conversations, it was interesting having such a long period of time to sign the band, you know, we're signing artists now in such a short window where you maybe meet them for a week or two and you got to move because things are popping off on TikTok or Spotify. Like we had three, three and a half, four years to do this deal. And you can imagine along the way, like Clive's looking at me sideways and goes, this is never going to happen. <laughs> I was like, no, this is how they do it. Like, trust me, it's going to happen. And we hung in there and I think we were really, 
I was able to help Clive. There was a, a guy who was Clive's right hand label, Charles Goldstock, who was instrumental in this. Tom Corson, who runs Warner Records now, um, was instrumental in this. Richard Palmese was our head of promotion. We had an incredible team there. Um, which is a really interesting part of this story too, if we have time to dig into it. There's incredible people on the team that worked on these records with me, um, which I think was part of what drew the, the band there too. But I thought they were still one of the biggest bands in the world. And I think what you saw when the record came out, we did it on their terms. And outside of Tool putting out a record that same week, we had the biggest record in the world um, with that album. Um, as it launched, they had returned with the we, we put Worldwide Suicide out within 10 days. It was number one in Alternative. They hadn't had a number one Alternative record in, in years. Um, so in terms of the commercial viability of the band, knowing the deal they wanted to do, knowing how we were going to invest in the record from just a financial and logistical record label perspective, there was definitely money to be made there. And it was also a very prestigious signing for our label as Clive was building J Records and the team around him was building the label. It was a very prestigious and exciting signing for all of us. Um, Clive, I would not ever speak for him, but Clive included. He really was engaged in this. And there's some great Clive stories about the campaign too. Um, so yeah, I think we all saw the commercial viability. But back to the start, for me, it was just an opportunity to work on a record or records with one of my favorite bands of all time. How does a 28-year-old get in the ear of a music legend like Clive Davis and then also get in the ear of one of the biggest rock bands of all time in Pearl Jam. And uh, I, I know you're going to poo-poo yourself, but how does a 28-year-old broker that deal? I guess it's the same way I ended up working for Stone and being in that office in the first place. Just naive ambition, you know? I just, like, never knew what I couldn't accomplish. And within, a, like, six months of working for Stone, after a year of interning, Stone hired me. I ended up working at the label for four years, but I, I signed the first band I ever signed was Queens of the Stone Age. And it's the same thing. I sat with Josh who had, you know, been in a very successful band who'd been signed to a major label. We are the same age, but he knew a lot more about the process. And I just believed I could do it. And, and I think it was the same thing with Clive. When I got there, I just had so much passion for the A&R process, the discovery process. I just started sending records. It wasn't my job to do so. I didn't have an A&R title. But the company was also small enough at that time. I was probably the 15th person or so hired at J Records. So it was a very small team. And at, from a major label perspective, with the resources we had working for someone like Clive, I had incredible access because there were only a few of us there. So I would, you know, talk to our head of A&R, guy named Keith Nathalie, and be like, how do I present this record to Clive? I think the first thing that happened that got their attention is I sent them the Jimmy Eat World Bleed American record. Um, my friend Michelle Fleischley was working for John Silva and they were looking for a home for it. She sent it to me along with a number of other people. And I fell in love with that record and took it into Clive. And they kind of gave me the like, you're 28. That's cute. Thanks <laughs> for bringing us a record thing. And then that record goes on to do very well. And they're like, wait a minute, maybe we should be paying a little more attention to what's going on here. Um, and so I brought him a few more things and, and he shortly thereafter gave me an A&R title. So by the time I was officially signing the, the Pearl Jam deal with the band, I was, I had been given an A&R title. I'd also worked on the marketing of a number of records. I worked on the marketing of the first one and five record. I worked very closely on the marketing of the first two Alicia Keys records. So I was, I was pretty well in, entrenched in the culture of the company 
but it started with just that, you know, it's the thing that I try to never lose. And I hope no one ever loses that naive ambition of just running through the wall. And I truthfully didn't know any better than to just go for it, you know? And, um, there were definitely moments along the way where I was stumbling and falling over myself, trying to figure out how to do a deal of this magnitude with a band of this magnitude uh, that I was so personally connected to. Uh, so there were some really funny bumps along the way, but, uh, yeah, I think that's where it starts. It's just not knowing any better. Looking back, the deal makes sense on so many different levels as to what Pearl Jam was looking for, what they eventually grew into and, and how they do business now. Uh, it makes sense that they would want to be uh, aligned with, with a titan like Clive Davis. All of this looking back, I remember at the time going, wait a second, why is Pearl Jam signing with a label that at the time I had never heard of? Uh, and the reason mm-hmm. I had never heard of them, because I was dealing with stuff in the rock and alternative rock world. J Records yep. at the time was was known as more of a pop and R and B, an urban type of of label. Clive Davis known for working in those circles. At the time, a lot of people, and I assume I wasn't on an island, were were scratching their head. How how hard was it to sell Clive on the concept of bringing Pearl Jam aboard this label? Outside of the fact of the cachet of having the the name Pearl Jam on your 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 label, but then. Over the course of, and as you kind of touched on, three years, three and a half years, four years later, how much <laughs> are you still having to sell him on all of this, that this is worth what you're, what you're selling? He, he never needed to be sold. You know, his history with the dead or Patti Smith or Springsteen or you know, Aerosmith, he worked with so many great rock bands over the years and still understood the space, even though that's not what he had made the core of his company over time. He really understood it, and he was so good, too, with – I don't know how else to say it because I, I, I try and tread lightly with these kind of words around this band, but just, you know, iconic figures in music. He's just so great with them. Like, it's disarming. You walk into Clive's office and see Aretha Franklin and Sly and the Family Stone and these kind of artists on the walls of – the kind of records that have crossed Clive's desk. I think it's easy to think of Clive as Whitney or the pop Santana records or things that he did later in his career. But Clive was rooted in so much music. And I think that's the beauty of working at a major label is that the canvas is so broad, you know, you can paint on all kinds of pictures. I I learned a lot about putting records out globally and what uh, the, dynamic and uh, makeup of a pop hit was sitting in Clive's office. I had so many opportunities to listen to him make records and, and hear those records as they were being made. So I learned a ton about that, which was amazing because I really needed that, didn't have that experience. But on the other side, we had an incredible team who had a lot of experience with rock records. Tom Corson had worked at Capitol and Columbia um, and worked on a ton of rock records. Our head of rock promotion at the time that we were signing the band was Chris Waltman, who now manages 21 Pilots. Um, my right-hand guy on the marketing of the record is Brandon Creed, uh, who worked with Bruno Mars forever and is now partners in a, a huge management company at Full Stop. Um, so we had an incredible group of talented people who were all huge, huge fans of the band. Um, we had a great PR team who was ready to dig in. And I think the fresh start with us and the band also got rid of all that baggage, of all the stuff that had happened at Epic that had maybe worn the label out a little bit. 
And we just came at it fresh. Like there was nothing we weren't going to talk to the band about. I kind of made that agreement with the band and Kelly, like, let's have every conversation. I'm not afraid for you to tell me no. And there were times they did. There's a lot of stuff that they did that I think no one would have expected them to do. And I'm not sure they would have done had they been on another label without that unique dialogue that we were able to have. Um, where I was just, und- again, undaunted, probably didn't know any better. But I would write Kelly an email about doing storytellers. Or I was looking back through the Wikipedia on this record to just kind of brush up on facts and stuff. Like I forgot they had done the sessions at AOL at the time. It was such a big deal that they would do that. We got them back on SNL, which made more sense. But they hadn't played SNL in 10 years or something. Um, they did uh, Jules Holland in the UK. So all that stuff that they hadn't done in a long time, they were really open to doing. I just think no one was having the dialogue with them about it. Um, and I think that dynamic was a big part of the way this record rolled out as well. I was, I'm going to ask Matt about the, the campaign itself. And he touched on a lot of the, the, the exciting things that they were doing at that time. Billy, I just remember kind of scratching my head when the deal was announced. And, but then also when the rollout began, everything felt kind of like, I don't want to say fresh because, I mean, at that point I had been a fan of the band for, for 15 years, but it was it definitely felt like a reset and it felt like there was a new energy coming off of the band through the things that they were they ended up doing. What were your thoughts in 2006 uh, as the avocado rollout began? 100%. It felt, just like you said, so new, creative, and fresh. And at for like an Uber fan, it was like, for, to even be able to recognize that, like it is, is pretty wild because you're just so in the trenches of it. Like when you're, when you're a fan, you don't, as a fan, you don't really pay attention, you know, to what label and all, and all of that. However, I guess I saw a little bit of that too because I, I was, you know, inside the, the Sony family watching a little bit of it, but it was just so, some of the things like you said, Matt, that they did, I remember thinking like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can't believe they're going to do this. They can't believe they're going to do that. Even thinking about some of the underplays that happens, like for that album, they did, you know, uh, Irving Plaza. And then like, mm-hmm. I was wild. Like, and that's the sort of stuff as a, a fan, like I couldn't, I, I couldn't handle it. Cause it was like, that's just so cool. And I, I constantly, if there was one thing that was always uh, drilled in my head about the band is like, oh, they never do the same thing twice and they are always like changing things up and for me for that album more than a lot of them it felt you you could feel it you could feel like these creative and you could felt you could feel there was another uh creative team helping them uh along with the process because there was just such uh such great marketing done for the record so yeah i I definitely i could i could feel it as a fan and then i could see it a little bit (laughs) because i could see it because i was uh uh working at sony at the time but um yeah it was just awesome. I think, you know, it's back to the thing. I really felt like the band were refreshed by the fact that we weren't afraid to have the conversation with them. You know, there was, there was no baggage. They came into it with a lot of enthusiasm. I mean, the, the making of the record process is also really intense. And I think when they got to the end of the road, they were so excited to get out there and go. Um, and I think they knew they probably weren't going to do that for every record going forward. But for this record in this time, it felt right to them. Um, and, you know, it's like thinking of things too. Like they did a show for K-Rock in L.A., which, you know, K-Rock had had K-Rock L.A. had had a very public uh, beef with the band. where Kevin Weatherly had gone in the press and said, we will never play another Pearl Jam song unless it's a hit. 
and they haven't delivered us hits. I mean, that's in the press. And Van, of course, reacted as they would and said, okay, well, fine. Um, but we were able to kind of mend some of those fences and come back at it. And I think it's back to your earlier question. It's just proof that Van were still such a significant band, still are obviously at that time, or such a significant band in the landscape of rock music and mainstream culture that it was still very relevant for everyone. K-Rock was dying to do a show with them. And, and all of these outlets we just talked about were dying to have them be a part of it. And it, it extended to the UK. I think some of that stuff too, of like, launching a record with a show at Irving Plaza and just some of those things they hadn't done in a while um, were really fun. And we were able to do it all within the confines of the band's strengths. Like uh, I was thinking a lot this morning about we were on the front end of offering a purchase of the album with a concert ticket. They had just rolled that technology out. So it wasn't a bundle as they do now where it was forced upon you with the ticket, but it was a, a an option and we sold a lot of records that way and we were really able to lock arms with the 10 club and do a ton of stuff direct to the fans um that i think that they hadn't had the opportunity to do yet so um so much of the stuff that we collectively worked on together was done within the confines of the the world that pearl jam had created i think one of the, the if you look back that that album and that process from from the first conversation to to the release of the album in 06, it really set the template for the second act of Pearl Jam, which we're still in. And for me as a fan and as an observer, it was kind of a, it was a reset for me because up until from the first 10 years of the, the thought process, they don't want to be famous. They don't, they don't want to do the music videos. They don't want to do the, uh, it was all, they just want to put out music and be left alone. Starting with Avocado, it changed the mindset of, oh, wait a second. <laughs> They're okay with some of these things. They just want to have be the decision maker or in the room or part of the process of, of how they were going to be marketed, how they were going to be presented. They're not above putting out a Halloween T-shirt that they have 100% control of, that they sell on their on 10 Club. It's not that they don't want this. It's just they want it done in ways that they have control of. And it started with that whole process. How much did you guys, yeah. and, and you mentioned a couple of times that, you know, you guys just came in and said, hey, look, say no, but we're bringing you everything. And if you want to say no, yep. it's fine. We're going to keep bringing to you. How much do you think that really kind of opened their minds up to go, well, wait a second. Maybe I do want to do this. Maybe this is something fun, and maybe it's it is in my best interest. And also, I agree with it. Well, there's a couple things, and you know, I again tread lightly because there is a a curtain around this band right. that I was lucky enough to be behind for quite a long time, have been for quite a long time. So I don't like to give too much away, but I will say this is one of the most competitive bands that's ever existed. Like they, and all that stuff you said is true. They have their own ethos about how they approach things and the way that they would ever promote themselves or their music. And that started on day one, but they're also incredibly competitive. You know, they want to make great music. That's why they blast it as long as they have. And, and you see it every time you go see this band. Um, you know, I, I can see it now after, I don't know, I've probably seen 200 Pearl Jam shows or something crazy. Um, Every time I see them, I can now see it like they come out and within the first couple of songs, I'm like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be one of those incredible shows. They, they have a, a massive competitive spirit. Yes, they're going to do it their way, but they 
do want to be one of the biggest bands in the world. They're proud of that spot that they have. And so I think they were really feeling that at the time. Things had gotten a little wobbly in terms of that piece of their career, and they really wanted to solidify that. And that started in our very first meeting with the band. Um, they were like, we want to do the things that it takes to make sure that we have a great second act of the band. You know, we get to that. In my mind, the marker, and it's probably not very significant to them, but to me it was significant to say, I want to get you to that moment where you're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We knew at that time they were going to be. They were, you know, had already done everything they needed to do to get there. That comes at 25 years. And that 25-year marker to me was like, let's get you there with energy and momentum. And uh, I think that this this record did really start them down that road. I like what you call it, the second act. I think this was the start of the second act of the band's career. Um, and I think they were very hungry to be played on the radio again. They just didn't quite know how to approach that. And I think us being a young label with an incredibly experienced team that I think was as good or better than anybody, I really like, we had an incredible team around the band at the label. Um, and their willingness to listen and, and collaborate was incredible. I mean, Eddie's calling me while he's writing the record from his house, you know, as he was kind of struggling to find the direction for this record. Um, he called me to talk about how he was going to structure storytellers, you know, to try and figure out how to, so, you know, things that you wouldn't expect this band to be collaborative on, they were fully engaged in. I think that's what you see when you step behind the curtain with this band. It's like, yeah, they do it their own way and they created their own thing, but they do want to win. Um, and they have for that reason. You mentioned Clive and, and uh, his role in the in the campaign, the rollout of the campaign and, and some of the things that he was bringing to the table. What were some of the things that Clive was interested in as far as uh, rolling out a campaign for a Pearl Jam album? Well, I mean, you know, Clive is always thinking about singles, of course. You know, like, that's his mindset. So he was very excited by the reaction of all of us on the Pearl Jam team, from our rock radio guys especially. Um, by the time the record came out, Chris Waltman was no longer at the company, but there was a guy named Billy Burrs who put his, his ass on the line pretty hard. And the minute that we heard Worldwide Suicide, he said, that's the number one record. And he delivered it in 10 days. We almost got it the very first week that we serviced the song. We missed it, I think, by a couple of chart positions and a couple of spins. And by the following week, it was the number one record. And that had not happened for the band in quite a while. So I think Clive was very excited about that piece of it. Um, you know, he did all kinds of stuff. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have found this in your research about this record, but we did a like a midnight sale or something at Tower Records on Broadway and 4th, the old Tower Records there you know, in the era of these midnight sales. And there were people lined up down the block for like two days. Um, and I remember it being fairly cold, you know, not like winter, but fairly cold at uh, that period of time. So Clive was like, what can I do? And he actually called me and said, hey, do you think the band would be okay with me going down there with a photographer and giving donuts and coffee to everyone who's in mind? So Clive goes down to Tower Records with, <laughs> Krispy Kreme donuts and coffee and hands them to the hundreds of people standing in line with the photographer down there. Like that's how engaged he was and how proud he was to have the band on the label. Um, as we got to follow up singles, you know, it's an interesting thing too. He really loved that song, Come Back. Um, great song. He thought that song was a great follow-up. Uh, I think it hit him in some of his blues roots um, history. 
and obviously a great song. And we actually did a radio edit of that song, which is another thing like people probably wouldn't expect from this band. They kind of turned it over to us and said, let us hear what you think it would sound like to put it on the radio because it's a little long. Um, and so Clive and I worked on an edit together and sent it to the band. We never ended up putting that song out as a single. I think our radio team weren't as convinced, but he was just pushing and fighting and looking for opportunity and really pushed the international team um, to make sure that it was maximized. I think that was one of the things. The band had a few boxes that needed to be ticked to refresh things that were just logistical nuts and bolts label operational stuff, like re-engage some international territories. Um, I think it's really it really helped the band re-energize Europe and we went to South America a couple of times right around that time. So we were able to engage in South America in a new way. They've always been huge in Australia. We were able to kind of keep that going. So Clive was, was really, really hands-on with all of it. But, you know, Clive was doing stuff to sign the band. Like we flew to Cleveland, saw a show and hung with the band after the show. And um, Clive spent a lot of time getting to know Kelly. He had Kelly in his office a number of times to talk about the deal and the record. So, and, you know, Clive too, like, because of his experience with the dead, like Clive really understood the 10 club and the fan engagement, the direct to fan engagement that, you know, at that time was still fairly new and technology was in a different place. We didn't have social media, for example, but obviously Pearl Jam had created this network of, of this incredible fan club. So Clive really understood all of this stuff. And um, yeah, he made it a priority. He knew what a big deal it would be for us, which is for him a really big deal because he'd worked with so many incredible artists over the years, but he was very, very, very engaged in the campaign from the little nuts and bolts stuff, like taking donuts to tower records to help him pick singles and follow-ups. And, you know, they made a video for the first time on this album cycle that, uh, you know, Clive was very engaged in Clive. Also, uh, I don't even know if the band know this, but Kelly was working hand in hand with us about SNL and people may not know this, but, it doesn't matter who you are. Every SNL booking is competitive because the biggest artists in the world want a slot. They have a record coming that year and there's only what, 10, 12 episodes per half of the year. So you're fighting for every slot. And at no point was SNL like, no way do we want Pearl Jam, but we had to just like everyone else, bring out all the firepower to try and get it done. Clive hand wrote a letter to Lauren Michaels, um, and uh, Rob Light from CAA chimed in and Kelly chimed in from his side and, and worked. Uh, we worked all the angles, but Clive, like all that kind of stuff, like Clive hand wrote a letter to Lauren and said it would be really important for you to have the band back on the show. Um, so he was, he was very, very, very engaged. And uh, as I said, you know, as a young guy, just to have that kind of access to Clive Davis for me, was an incredible experience and I, I I didn't know what to expect about how the band would embrace him but it was an odd but perfect pairing they looked at him with his stateliness and his suit and his history with all this incredible music and they loved it he knew exactly when to engage with them he knew when to stay out of their way he understood their fan club their fans their team um, so I, I give Clive a lot of credit because obviously the band wouldn't have signed there without him I I love the uh, I love the like the the what if of of if comeback was released as a single because at the time it would have been unlike anything that they had ever released before as far as a single for for radio 
they would eventually go to that well, uh, similar style with sirens, but that wouldn't be for right. for another few years down the road. I mean, just me, my perspective, having the chance to spend so much time with the band. But, you know, Kelly Curtis is an absolute mentor of mine, like top of the mountain. I wouldn't be here without him. And so I've been close to Kelly for a long time before, during, and after my time as their A&R guy. And so I've heard all these records as they came in. I think that conversation started around that time because the band were not, the formats are obviously always shifting slightly, but the band had never really been played at AAA. And Kelly came into that being like, this is a format this band should live at. And I think the comeback conversation started there. For me, the song that, you know, it's interesting as you work on these records and have hindsight, I have this with a lot of records I've worked on. The song that, could have been the huge song is gone. Great song. Um, I was in Atlantic City, which I think is where Ed wrote that song. And they played a show and he he debuted it as he does so many times when he's working on something. I think it was just him and a guitar because the band had not worked up a version of the song yet. And he played it in Atlantic City and I was like, holy shit, this song is going to be huge. This is an incredible, beautiful song. Um and then they recorded it and, and they know this cause I've had this conversation for sure with stone and, and a couple of the other guys in the band. I didn't think the recording nailed the energy of the song. I was still thinking when they recorded that song, it's got so much potential, but it's not quite fully realized on the record. And again, you don't a and Pearl Jam record the traditional way. So I didn't fly to the studio and be like, we got to rework the song. You know, obviously that's never going to happen, but the, day they played that show at the will turn for k-rock they had been out playing these songs a bit as a band and it was one of those moments with this band we've seen it happen with so many songs off so many of their records the song had gone to the place where no pun intended where i thought it could go and so i called stone the next day from my office in la i was like hey would you guys ever consider going back in and recutting this and we could put this out as a single because i think you've got it now and Stone was like, man, I don't know. I think that's probably a bridge too far. But to me, that was the song that never quite got there, but had the potential to be a, a huge single, a uh, huge radio song off the record. I think Comeback could have too. I was thinking about the same thing this morning. Like, I wonder what would have happened. Maybe Clive was right. Um, he often was, so wouldn't surprise me at all. What were some of your other thoughts on the on the album and how it turned out? Uh, tracks, uh, sequencing, just the whole the whole layout of the actual album itself. Well, it was an interesting process, and it's alluded to a little bit in the press and things the band have said about the record. But it took them a long time to get the record finished. Um, it was like an eighteen month process, uh, and I think part of that, and I only speak about it because it's been mentioned in the press by the band, but. Eddie had just had his first child. And so I think he was trying to figure out how to get in that writing space that for him is partly a dark space. Well, he had the joy of his new baby at home. And uh, he actually set up like a airstream out back of his house just to have a space to go write and get away and have his own energy flow. And so they took a run at recording the record, didn't quite work. They asked for more time, which we, of course, gave them. Uh, I think that happened twice where they're just like, we're not quite there. The songs haven't materialized. We're not happy with where the recordings are. And my whole thing to them all the way along the process was let's get it right. You know, it's such an important, you know, I think it 
highlights the importance of that start of act two of their career. Um, I love what you said there. I think that's absolutely right. I think the band knew the importance of that and really wanted to deliver a great record. So they went back twice to finish it. And um, I remember this, just looking at the timeline of things that in the middle of that, they went to South America and did some touring and came back and reapproached the record. And I think in the end it really paid off because um, the record ended up being in, in the place that they wanted it. And it was obviously a great record. Um, and led to all the things that we've talked about too, that opened a lot of doors back up for them that they hadn't, hadn't opened in a while. So I think that was a really fascinating part of the process for me as a young A&R guy of just kind of watching a band of their magnitude dig in so hard to get the record they wanted to get. Um, and I think in my process with younger artists that I work with before that now, it's much more of an open dialogue that you're going through. And with this band who are so self-contained, it was just kind of me as an observer, obviously giving them all the space they need to, to make the record. But yeah, I also had a major label who do have business concerns who are like, we have this record in our plan for this year. What are we going to do here? But again, I worked for incredible people who were very understanding of that and not breathing too hard down my neck. But, um, it was a really interesting record making process. It didn't come easy. And I think in the end, all the energy that they put into it really, really paid off in the songs and the recordings ended up in a great place. And just, uh, just for our age check. So we all feel old about ourselves. That first child is now a young woman make, singing on movie soundtracks. So we're all. <laughs> That's, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's been a long time. Is, uh, you can see the gray in my beard for sure. Is, is gone your favorite track off the album? You know, I'm just like, I'm not a big favorite song guy. You know, I have so many Life Wasted is a great song. Obviously, Worldwide Suicide has a special place in my heart just because it was our lead single and had so much attention on it when it came out. Uh, there's so many great songs on this record. Um, but I would say, yeah, I think if somebody put a gun to my head, I'd say, I, I feel like that's a really, really special Pearl Jam song that probably hasn't been spotlighted in the way that I believe it should. I just think that's an incredible, incredible song. Yeah, for me, uh, the first time I heard it was on the way to that Irving Plaza show, taking the train up from uh, D.C. to New York at night. That song came on as I was leaving 30th Street Station in Philadelphia on the way to New York. And, you know, it's a great driving song, but I will tell you it's also a great train riding song as you're just watching mm. things whiz by you with that song in your ears it's pretty, uh, it's pretty impactful. So I, I was connected to that song yeah. from the first listen. Yeah, no doubt. I think that's just, you know, a great part about working with this band is there's just so much dynamic to it all, you know, just like that. I think with another band, we probably go get back in there and recut that thing. Like, <laughs> let's make a run at it. And that's just not the way you deal with Pearl Jam or they deal with themselves. So, yeah, really, really interesting part of the whole story for sure. Well, before I before I wrap up, and 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 if Billy wants to chime in on anything on this part of the conversation, and if not, we'll move to the second segment. Um, look, I, I I'm pretty clear that I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan, and I thought that I was an Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam fan, and it turns out I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. Uh, so I, this is a Pearl Jam podcast, so I don't I don't want to. I'd be remiss if we didn't bring up Into the Wild. I don't want to go mm -hmm. into the depths of it that we did with the with the avocado conversation, but. Uh, I assume that the things – was it a package deal or did Ed in the middle of the process go, I'm enjoying what we're doing, let's continue with this other thing that I'm working on? 
Yeah, it, you know, we made an agreement with them that, you know, it was one of the things that they really wanted and deserved was that each record would be handled one at a time. So there was no long-term conversation. It was, let's do this record together. And it came with the precursor, which was really another really genius Kelly Curtis idea. They had that Benaroya Hall live album. He's like, why don't we put this out together as a way to get to know the teams and get things moving? And some interesting stuff happened that I think was good for us to just build trust and, and dynamic and everyone get to know each other. Like they came in to do a meeting about the Ben Arroyo Hall live album, which was what it was. It was another Pearl Jam live release, beautiful record, yeah. special record, all that, but it wasn't going to be a frontline studio album. So we were handling it accordingly, but Kelly came in with the artwork to that album and showed it in our meeting. And you know, this is again, pre-social media. So there's no big spreading of information. There was maybe 25 people in that meeting. 20 minutes after we left the meeting, the artwork leaked. Somehow someone had gotten it and put it out there on the internet. And so, you know, that was my first crisis to have to deal with with the band. <laughs> it was like, okay, how are we going to handle this? And we owned it and fell on the sword and said, we don't know how this happened or where this came from. We got it pulled down and all that. And so I think we had built trust in going into the avocado record the avocado record had gone really well. And then it kind of came out of left field that Eddie worked on the music to into the wild, you know, Sean Penn had called him and asked him to do it. And I think it was something like 11 days. Eddie recorded all those songs. He watched the film, went to work, got in the studio and knocked all that music out. So it kind of came together pretty quickly. And Kelly brought it back to us and said, you know, things are going great. Why don't we do this together? Which was obviously an incredibly special ride again for me in my career, just like an absolute highlight. I am. Um, I'm just so connected to this band. It's almost every relationship I have. Somehow Spiderweb's out of it. Kelly also introduced me to Cameron Crowe. I worked on his Elizabethtown soundtrack with him. Worked with Kelly and Cameron a little bit on his show Roadies. And so anyway, Kelly kind of brought me into this circle. And the soundtrack was such a huge part of that film that we were in every film meeting. We were at the studio. We were in every marketing meeting. They were trying to figure out what to do. And that record caught you know, for lack of a better term, just really caught organic momentum. Um, the song started to get out there. The film didn't do particularly well as we, we didn't do as well as we had hoped it would. Um, uh, but the soundtrack just took on this life of its own and songs again were being played on the radio without a big push. And, um, and then Eddie was able to go do his first solo tours around that record and, and stuff. So it, it, it opened a lot of, fun doors and yeah, it did extend my time working with the band as their A&R person um, by a couple more years. What, uh, how, how, how did the, I don't want to say breakup, but how, how did the end of the relationship come about? Cause it was just the one album. Yeah. Clive was no longer in charge of the label. Um, and the band were trying to figure out what to do next. And the next record that Pearl Jam album that followed ours was, was done with target. It was a target exclusive. Another thing I think people thought the band would probably never do and they were offered an incredible deal and it really, again, they did it within the parameters of the band and their business and the way they like to do things. And um, so it was an interesting time because a lot of artists were doing those and uh, it just made sense for the band, I think, at that time. I don't think it was the end of a good relationship with us at all as much as it was exactly what the band wanted and why they wanted to be able to make decisions album by album. Um, so that they could do the best thing for themselves right. in that moment. And I, I feel fortunate that we were the right decision for them at the time that we got to work on Avocado and 
Benaroya Hall and, and it bled into, uh, into, into the wild. But, uh, when, when I talked to them about the deal they were going to do at Target, it was fairly undeniable. And, and so it, it made a lot of sense. They got to do it on their terms. And, and, um, so yeah, I, I don't think it was the end. And, and there was no negative ending at all. It was just a natural parting of ways. It's just a, it's a, it's an important period of time for the band. And I think, you know, you, you guys, uh, and you specifically need to be acknowledged that, you know, you showed, you helped show the band that there was life after, uh, a 10 year long-term major label record deal. And I think a lot of the things that, that happened during that time period and during their association with J records was really impactful in things that they were doing moving forward. And I, 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 I I don't want to, I, I, I'm going to speculate. I don't want you to speculate, but if things hadn't gone well or if trust hadn't been established, who knows what would have happened moving forward with, with the band and how they would have chosen to release music. So it's just, it's, it's not like the, the biggest album that they ever put out, but in this conversation, it's just reinforcing what I always thought was it was an important, one of the most important albums that they put out. And the reason is mostly behind the yeah. scenes stuff. Yeah, well, thank you so much. And yeah, again, I think it's like anything any of us work on. It starts with the music. Like, starts with the music, starts with the band. They they delivered us. I think a really important album at that time in their career, as you said. Thank you for saying all the kind things about it. But uh, you know, I I learned from them very early. Like, we're only as good as the music that was put in our hands. And so they they worked really hard on that record and, and put great music in our hands. And they did a lot of work around that record. I think again back to my point i i love highlighting because it just for especially for young people starting in the business that anything's kind of possible like i i am on the cover of the drop in the park record as a kid (laughs) when eddie swung out on the mic cable he landed within arm's length of me i was jammed in the front there and going to their shows and living music in seattle and then i start working for stone which i think is incredible and i'm in the pearl jam management office like how did i end up here and then my career starts to, then I become their A&R person and still to this day, I have a relationship with the band. Um, it's a pretty incredible story. And I think it just reminds like a timing and luck, but also anything's possible. Um, and so it definitely was a reminder to me as I was brushing up on the record in that period of time, like how incredible of an experience it was for me that I got to go from being a kid who was buying tickets and going to their shows and loving their records. And all of a sudden, I work with them and then I'm their A&R guy. So um, pretty amazing and uh, anything's possible. That is such a great kind of period yeah. to the, to this part of the conversation and, and kind of a an ellipse into the your Pearl Jam experience, which we're going to get into next and, and also talk about, you know, what, what band you're working these days and, and what Matt Shea is up to. And we'll, we'll get into that next on Jamly Matter. Two other podcasts I want to get your ears on while you're in the podcast frame of mind. Number one, my craft beer podcast, Head Retention. It's all about the lifestyle of craft beer. Whatever you would discuss at your favorite local brewery, beer-related or life-related, we probably discuss it on Head Retention. And the other, it's all about soccer. If you're a soccer fan, make sure you check out Pitch Pass. Head Retention and Pitch Pass, both available through the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, Matt, before we get into your Pearl Jam experience, 
Tell us, and you know, I've touched on a, a head and the heart, but tell us what you do now. What, what did you go on to do after this? Yeah. So I was at RCA, I call it RCA Music Group because that's what it became. It was originally J Records, Clive started the label, and then Clive was slowly taking over all of what became Sony BMG and then Sony Music. And so I, I worked at the RCA Music Group with, with, with that, whatever that meant along the 10 years I was there from 2000 to 2010. And then in 2010, I decided it was time for me to do something else. And I really wanted to get into management, probably largely because I started in the Kelly Curtis management office, uh, watching the management of the band. Um, it felt like the natural next step for me. And so I took a little bit of time off. I took six months to kind of regroup. And about six months after I left the label, I stumbled into the Head and the Heart record. Um, and so it was my my natural bridge into management. Uh, I've been working with the Head and the Heart since 2010. Um, I was partnered originally with a company called Zeitgeist. And then I ran the management company for a company called C3, who are the promoters behind Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits and huge, huge festival promoters. Um, I ran the management operation there for five years. And a couple of years ago, I decided it was time to start my own company. So I did that. My company's called Artist Management, um, ironically, uh, Artist MGMT. We manage the Head and the Heart, uh, a band called Illiterate Light, a great pop artist named Rin Weaver, um, a developing artist named Hi Baru, and a, uh, I, I now live in Nashville, and I'm working with my first country artist, an artist named Charlie Worsham. Head in the Heart, I think, was the big name uh, from from the from your your current list. Tell us about if 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 there are bands or people that you're managing now that that Pearl Jam fans would would have like a kind of a door into based on their their love of Pearl Jam, and you know today's Pearl Jam is not 1990s Pearl Jam. So it's a it's a mm. much broader spectrum. Who who would we check out, and what tracks would we check out from from your artists that we as Pearl Jam fans would be getting into? Um, well, I, you know, the, working with the Head and the Art is really interesting because they were also a Seattle band. So <laughs> my first management client brought me right back to Seattle, which you know my my heart will always be there as my hometown, even though I haven't lived there for a long time. Um, so that's been really interesting, and they're hard at work on a new album. Um, also, I would encourage people just in terms of that band. We we put out a, a film on Amazon last year that was uh, a concert film and kind of documentary on the band and the early parts of how they became a band. They performed on the roof of Pike Place Market, um, and there's documentary footage woven into it telling the story of the band. I would encourage people to go watch that film on Amazon Prime. It's uh, It's fantastic. In terms of the bands on my roster that I think Pearl Jam fans would love, uh, Illiterate Light are a two-piece rock band um, from Virginia. Uh, I always say kind of inspired by the Flaming Lips, My Morning Jacket, uh, kind of in that lane. Um, incredible guitar-driven music um, that I think they would really, really love. Um, you can listen to the whole first album. Like I, Again, I'm not a favorite song guy per se, but there's incredible songs throughout the album that I think Pearl Jam fans would love. And I think Pearl Jam fans would love coming to see this band play live as well. Um, they are an incredible live band, tons of energy. The drummer plays standing up. They're all over the stage. Um, so they're working right now. They're in the studio in about a month, uh, starting work on their second record. Uh, so they're an, they're an incredible band. I think Pearl Jam fans would really love. We've got a couple questions for you, Matt, uh, as part of my Pearl Jam experience. 
Billy, uh, I don't know if you have the list up. Uh, he's touched on a couple of months, but I, I definitely want to hear a little bit more. Uh, you know the first question, Billy. Before, what You don't even need a list for that. So what's what's the first question that we, we ask from my Pearl Jam experience? Uh, Maybe she doesn't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we've done so, wait, we've done so many that I'm now. Um, no, kicking it back to you, Roach. What's the first question? How'd you come to find Pearl Jam? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, I was a kid in Seattle, so but yeah, I played basketball my freshman year of college at a little school called Indiana Wesleyan University. Um, and so, as all that music was emerging, I was a little too young to be in the scene of music. You know, I didn't know any of the bands or anything. I'd known probably first and foremost of Soundgarden because they had you know made records earlier and been signed. I had the Temple of the Dog album before I went to Indiana. I'd worn that record out the summer before my freshman year of college. But I was in Indiana as Nevermind broke and then 10 broke. And so I was, you know, kind of living Alice in Chains. All this stuff was happening. It's honestly, it's a, it's odd to say because I had just a dream. But that's what drew me back to Seattle. I was not super happy in Indiana at a Christian university with a lot of rules in the Midwest where I felt very out of place and all this exciting stuff was happening in Seattle. So I kind of went back there with just a dream of getting into music. No hard evidence that it would actually happen. Um, but I was introduced to Pearl Jam. You know, I, I had, I had the record, I had the temple, the dog record, but I remember the first chance I had to see them perform live because I was stuck in, in a small town in Indiana was on MTV seeing even flow and alive videos and it just drew me in i was completely transfixed by what i had known of bigger rock videos at the time and all the obvious stuff that was happening coming out of seattle and just in music in general uh, was really fascinating to me and as a 18 year old kid i felt very attached to that that it was coming from my hometown so i think that was probably the moment where i was like all in on Pearl Jam was <laughs> seeing those early videos and then getting my ass back to Seattle to find a way to see him play live. Yeah, how much does it suck that that you grew up in the in Washington State and then as soon as you leave, Washington State blows up as a musical center? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I ran back. So <laughs> school probably school year probably ended in May, and I was like, okay, I've proven that I can play college basketball. I'm not going to the NBA. Like, let's get back to the middle of this mess. And, you know, we were all playing music, you know, hacking around in bands, me and all my friends. And I played in some bands in college and, and ran the college radio station for a while and all that stuff. So the dream started to become a little more real when I got back there, but I just had these fans, you know, we were in that era of all of the bootleg tapes that were out there. You know, you'd get a zine and you'd go through and say, I want, the Pearl Jam played their third show in Santa Barbara or something, you know, it's like in this little club and there was VHS tapes. Somebody had filmed it yep. and it had leaked or you get a live recording. And, you know, as they started to tour the world, I'd get like their 300 cap club show in Copenhagen, you know, that I'd have. And so I got pretty deep into that. I think they are for me, like, fill that spot of really what the Grateful Dead were for so many fans. You know, I just was, I wanted everything. I wanted to see the show. I wanted to own the shirt. I wanted to 
own the bootlegs. I wanted to see every interview, read every interview about the band. And I, again, I think it did lead me in a really unique place in terms of stepping in and being able to work with the band down the road because I really felt like I was immersed in their culture. It's so interesting. You brought up the Grateful Dead a number of times in our conversation. And it's in 1992, if you had said to anybody, oh, these, this is the new Grateful Dead, everybody would have looked at you like, what are you, what are you even talking about? And yet they kind of are in the sense of they can go sell out arenas with no radio airplay, no promotion on social media or TV spots or whatever. And that's, that's dead esque. And I think the fan club, the yes. fan club is such a huge part of that too. Like, you know, I don't know what the band's mentality was, but I've talked to stone about this a number of times. They started from day one with that three song release cassette release. They, they were thinking about building a fan club, you know, and it was in an era where fan clubs were a relevant thing to do, but they were really focused on that and, did such an incredible job curating it, have continued to the, uh, the 10 club is just one of the most unique things surrounding any band out there since the dead. So obviously musically very different, totally different era of music, totally different mindset in terms of the band and the members and what the dead was, something unique to that time and, and that era. But I do think there's a lot of comparisons and, and, uh, so, yeah, I think – I don't know who else you would really compare to the dead on that level outside of a, something super jammy like a fish or right. whatever. But for Pearl Jam, who were doing something so different musically, to be able to curate that group of fans and make everyone, myself included, feel so invested, um, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, because I, I just remember – and I thought – I guess I thought to myself being a naive kid that, oh, th- this is how every band's fans – and every yeah. band interacts with their fans. And, you know, zines were, were popular with a lot of, of bands at that point. That's how you got the word out at the time. There was really no Internet. But I really did think, yep. oh, this is what you do when you're a fan of the band. You just join their fan club and then you get stuff from the bands. It was only much later that I go, oh, these were go- they were next level fan club interactions with mm-hmm. bands. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some early interviews and stuff you can probably see as well where they're talking about it you right. know, as people are being introduced to the band in their first mtv interviews and stuff they're like yeah you can get our three song thing through our fan club <laughs> <laughs> how cute it's thinking back probably, in 2021 you're like that's so cute <laughs> probably some blind it, it was coming from stone too who i you know consider my brother so i'm not afraid to throw him right under the bus but you know like it obviously was a vision that uh, worked and they've been so committed to it and um like i know everyone big small and different who's a member of that fan club still so proud to be a member yes like, that we everyone knows their number yep. and they all, you know like i love going to shows usually the seats that are reserved for you know friends of the band or people from the label or whatever are right behind where the fan obviously the fan club gets the best seats so we're usually right behind them and we can pre-show just watch all them talking and <laughs> knowing each other and high-fiving and sharing stories. And like, I don't know, as somebody who works around bands for a living, it's a pretty special thing. You've rattled off a couple of uh, live highlights. Uh, any Anything else, You any other live Pearl Jam experiences that really stand out to you? I mean, again, I've seen like 200 shows. Right. So, so, so if something stands so, out to you, so many. if something stands out to you, yeah. it's got to be a big deal. Yeah, you know, like, 
I've just gotten to know the DNA of the band on stage as a fan so, so well. Um, and still to this day, when I see them, the hair stands up in my arms when they hit that moment that they have a gear that very, very, very few bands have um, that they can access and they're constantly searching for. I, you know, I could just go on and on as I start gushing from my fandom, but I, I love what they do with the set list, you know, where it's inspired every night based on where they're playing, how they're feeling. I've watched them put it together. It's a real deal. They sit back there and, and figure out what they're going to play that night. And then call an audible on stage. I mean, everyone who's a fan knows about it, um, but it's pretty amazing. So I can now like catch it within a song or two where they're going to that place. And it's, pretty amazing to watch when they do the, the first moment for me was that drop in the park show because it was such a moment in Seattle. We all thought we were going to go to a fan show as a thank you to the city of Seattle as the band who had had such an amazing year or two. And, um, and it started as a show that was going to be in Gasworks park for, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 people. And then all of a sudden they realized that was way too small. And then it's a kind of a, my first outside in look at, how you pull something like that off. Like I would love to have been behind the curtain watching the team work on that. But all of a sudden it's in Magnuson park, I believe it was called. And then a hundred thousand people showed up. So how are they going to get them there? And they had buses. And I just, again, the things, little things that Pearl Jam does that, you know, they didn't want any bootleg tickets. So when you, the city, somehow they had gotten city buses to take us from the university of Washington football stadium to the park. And when you got off the bus, people were standing there with stacks of tickets. Who needs a ticket? Who needs? And they were just handing them to people. So it was a free show and no one was going to bootleg a ticket to get people in there. And then we were slammed in there. It was like, I don't know, it was like 100,000 people. I think Eddie has a, I've said a famous thing that they stuck with me from stage there where he goes, this is like the OK Hotel times a million, which was our little... <laughs> all ages club in Seattle that, you know, was first place I saw Queens of the Stone Age. Billy Jean and I were talking about while, while you stepped away for a second, like that's such a, a spot we had all been to watch baby bands play. And like, really it's such a poignant statement from Eddie, but there was a hundred thousand people there, I think. And as I said, I was jammed up front. And then when the vinyl came out and that photo came out, I'm like, God, I'm right there. As a kid, just so that was the first one. I've seen so many incredible shows after that. Um, it's hard to really even know where to start. It, for me, getting overly personal and probably sharing way too much of my story, I was a huge Led Zeppelin fan growing up. And for me, I think something that really drew me into the business was Led Zeppelin, a band who had also kind of done things their own way. And that's a song remains the same as a film was something that just blew my mind. Like it's New York, it's Madison Square Garden, it's Led Zeppelin, it's this frenzy at that time, what they were as a band. And I'm, I love all the romantic stuff that happens around a band where they get off their plane and they get in a limo and they go to the show and they come up backstage in that Zeppelin film. They come from the airport into the back of Madison Square Garden. They're on stage. And uh, something that always sticks with me is I had an opportunity to ride with Stone from the hotel to their Madison Square Garden show. And same thing I was thinking about. So it's the same as we came up the back of Madison Square Garden and he didn't walk right on stage, but it felt like definitely my first glimpse of that that moment and that magnitude of a rock show. Um, so that's always stuck with me. And at that time, the band, you know, we're not allowing people to stand side stage, but um, Stone sang his song off of 
no code of that show. And Kelly's like, oh, Stan's about to sing a song. Come up here with me. So it's just me and Kelly standing <laughs> side stage at Madison Square Garden. I'm like wow. 25 years old or something, <laughs> you know, and standing there with Kelly watching Stone sing a song from No Code. And he's having a smile at me as he's doing it. And I was like, man, this is really a thing. So personally, that show has always really, really stuck with me. And then I've loved, obviously, all the small shows I've had an opportunity to see. I saw the band play a number of small shows in Seattle. Um, when I worked for Stone, uh, Irving Plaza, um, I've just seen so many of those over the years. But to me, as they've gotten into this era of their touring career, um, I saw them do what I think was their 10th sold out show at the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Um, and they played 10 front to back that night, uh, I think for the first time ever as a live band. Uh, that definitely stuck with me. I, I love the huge shows too. The, 65,000 people in Mexico city and those kind of things. I, you know, I was with the band in South America and South America is just a crazy place to do a show because you're in those football stadiums. Right. And so there's barbed wire and cars are on fire as you're leaving the show and fans are rioting and with excitement, not, you know, getting out of control, rioting. They're just so excited about music. And um, so it's just, you know, seeing all those things, I think for me too, the unique experience of just everything that's gone on in my experience around the band um, and being able to have that peek behind the curtain at, at one of my favorite bands. It's just a big part of it too, outside of specific shows. But those are a few that come to mind right off the top of my head. Those are fantastic. I'm going to ask a quick follow-up on that. You've said you can usually see within the first song or two, whether it we're taking it up a notch. What what is it that you see? Is there one of the band members looked a little amped? A way a song is played? A, what what are some of those triggers for you to go? Okay, well, we're we're in for a good one here. Here's and I learned this around those New York shows. Here's an insider tip for Pearl Jam fans. Who you know, every Pearl Jam fan I feel like is even more knowledgeable about this band than I am. As all the access I've had, they know more than I do. So I'm not telling anyone anything they don't know. But if you feel like the band, you know, they've never played a bad show in their life, but by their standards, if you see a show that's not an A-plus Pearl Jam show, go the next night because they come out swinging. So they played two nights that that year at Madison Square Garden. I think it was 1998, maybe. Ben Harper opened those shows. Um, and they were not happy after night one with their performance. And it was pretty intense. Like, they came off stage upset that they had not played well, you know, not at each other. They just hadn't had a good show. And that second night, like the, the, they, they lit the place on fire. It was an incredible all-timer. And so I've seen that a few times where they don't hit that stride. Set list doesn't quite come together. They're not feeling it. Whatever happens, the energy's not right. The thing that I notice is just the band's energy. It's a, the thing that they have together that very, very, very few, if any, bands have. And I can just see it in their eyes, like song two, three, as they, you know, rip through that first part of the set, you can feel the lift off now, having seen them as many times as I have. And you can feel like those of us who know the band will all look at each other and be like, okay, here they go. This is going to be a special show. I'm sure you've got a number of things for this one. Uh, so I'll just ask you to narrow it down to one or two, but uh, your, your most treasured piece of Pearl Jam memorabilia or things that you are like, okay, this is this is something I'm going to have in my old age that I'm going to go. You, this is. It's so funny because you know, Stone and I actually talk about this. We have a laugh about it. 
neither of us have ever been the people who collect stuff for memories. I have a lot of friends who work in the business who have everything. Um, like literally everything down to handwritten lyrics or, you know, old school CD long boxes or whatever they've worked on across their career. I'm on the opposite. Like I hold it all as a memory. I have very little, like I haven't saved, saved laminates. Um, I have two Pearl Jam things in my house. One is the poster from the 10 year anniversary show in Las Vegas, which I was at, um, which was really special. I don't know if it was the first time, but I believe they played Crown of Thorns that night. Yep. Um, Brendan, Brendan O'Brien played Keys that night with them. That was a really special show. So I have that hanging in my house. I also, um, while we were working together in the Avocado album cycle, um, the band headlined Lollapalooza, I think 2007. Um, and as I was, as we were all walking off stage after the show, I ran into our dear friend Danny Clinch. And, you know, his camera is all over himself. He'd been photographing the show. And Danny and I had recently become friends, and he's done this to me two times. Uh, I showed back up in my office the next week, and, like, on Wednesday or Thursday, a, a package from Danny arrived, and it's amazing photo of Eddie on the edge of the stage with Chicago as the backdrop, um, performing at Lollapalooza. So I, I have that in my house. Um the other time Danny did that, I bumped into him. He was photographing Neil Young, and it's become a pretty famous Danny image in an old car, but it's just Neil in the rearview mirror. Danny was in the backseat, mm-hmm. kind of great photo of him in the rearview mirror. Neil Young's also one of my favorite artists of all time. No surprise, I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. <laughs> um, so I have those two Danny Clinch photos hanging in my house. Um, but I'm not a huge saver of stuff, which when you asked me to do this, I was thinking, man, be great if I was a saver of stuff because <laughs> I'd be able to dig back through it all, refresh my memory. It's been so long; I'm getting a little old. But um, I do, I'm not a huge saver of stuff. I probably have very limited amount of things from my career that I've thrown in a little fireproof box. And um, I don't know. There's a part of me. This is also probably a little over revealing, but just felt like I was violating the band's trust mm-hmm. by saving stuff. You know. Like I wasn't there to be a collector. I was there to be fortunate enough to be their friend and collaborator on the business side of things a little bit. And so I just have never really done that with any of my bands, to be honest. It's it's really fascinating because you say that, and I, I agree with you. But that one picture that you have framed of Ed in, in his hometown um, at Lollapalooza, if anybody walks into your home and sees that picture, that starts the conversation to all mm-hmm. of the all of the memories, so like in a sense, you don't need an, a ton of a shit ton of things. You can, that one photo starts the entire. Hey, now we're conversing, and now we're now I'm telling you stories, and we're enjoying ourselves over Pearl Jam. Kelly gave me something too when I worked with Cameron as a Christmas present. Kelly's a very gracious gift giver. Um, when Cameron made Almost Famous, you know, there's so much music in that thing. And he's created a leather-bound box of CDs. All the music cues, backstage passes, laminates that they made for Almost Famous. It's still all the Stillwater stuff and mm-hmm. laminates and the script notes. And uh, that's another thing that starts a million conversations about my relationship to Kelly and the band and how he introduced me to Cameron and all that stuff. So you're right. I think there's a couple of those little things that I have in my house. I'm not a huge collector or keeper of stuff, but uh, I think it's a window into a conversation for sure. 
Last question. It's going to be really interesting because I think for the first time, and it might be the only time as we move forward with this My Pearl Jam Experience feature, uh, we might get a shout-out to somebody not in the band. Um, but the the question we always wrap up with is, what does what does Pearl Jam mean to you? And I'm assuming you're going to go, you're going to pivot to Kelly in this. Well, you know, my entry point was Stone because of the label. So, the you know, he's first and foremost. Uh, I think of those two guys together because Kelly quickly took me under his wing. And, and Kelly was such a gracious guy, still is with, with young up-and-coming people. He's just a really good mentor. He would take me to Sonics games and we'd go shoot pool. I was just a kid. I was 22 years old, 23 years old, you know. So um, I think those two guys together, um, I learned so much from both of them in different ways. I think my ability to relate to artists in a unique way comes from my relationship with Stone first. You know, I think he taught me a lot about the respect of the artists and the music and their creating and, and how to facilitate that. And, um, also I was telling Billy Jean a great story about, well, I don't know. It's great to me, uh, about signing Queens of the Stone Age, which I'll, I owe so much to Stone. Like I probably don't have a, a career with him. I wouldn't have met Kelly without him. Um, but I went and saw Queens of the Stone Age play what was a showcase at the time. And they, they played at the okay hotel, which is a little tiny place, all ages place in Seattle, but it was a showcase. There was no fans. It was just music industry people. I was 23 years old or something. I had never been to one of these. Little did I know, like 10 major label A&R people are sitting behind me. But I walk into the show, see them play. I think they played five songs, maybe two or three had lyrics at the time. Two or three were instrumentals. <laughs> the band was like Matt Cameron on drums, uh, Ben Shepard on bass, a couple <laughs> of the Monster Magnet guys. like, And me being the like indie rock, college radio kid that i was was floored just not greatest thing ever you know meanwhile the major label and our people with what i know now must have been going they don't even have lyrics for these songs. Like, what are we supposed to do with this um and there was no recorded music yet so i went to the office the next day i didn't know how to a r record i didn't really know what that meant other than we're gonna go make an offer and then make it make a record and i walked into stone and i was like I don't know what to say, but I think I just saw one of the best rock shows I've ever seen in my life. This band's incredible. Josh is incredible. What do I do? And Stone goes, I want you to love them and make me love them. Like, go. He just fully gave me the reins to just go figure it out. I made the offer to the band. I I did not A&R that record in the traditional sense because they went to Joshua Tree, made it, and then sent the record back to us. Um but just did so much hands-on work. And I think my experience of getting into the business is so unique because Stone started it with complete access to do anything. It's probably the reason I had the guts to send records to Clive. Um, and then Kelly just further fueled that by giving me so much support, mentorship, his, his and the band's fearless ability to make crazy decisions <laughs> that people thought would never work. Like putting the bootleg series out always sticks with me. Like, Who's going to do that and make it work? And of course, it was hugely successful. Um, so I, I owe a lot to Stone in that way that he put a lot of trust in me and belief in me. And um, and I wouldn't know Kelly without him. So it starts with Stone. But those two guys in partnership are definitely my first mentors. I've been lucky enough to have a lot of great ones that followed. But I, I truly believe I wouldn't be in the record business um, 
without those two guys. That's powerful. That's that's a what Pearl Jam means to me answer, Billy. Roach, has was this has this been good or what? Do I uh, <laughs> I get great brownie points for bringing Matt Shea on today? Wow. I mean, how much so more? Much for me. How much more can a Pearl Jam fan want? I mean, no, Matt. You, thank you so much for sharing. I mean, this is uh, this was this was totally insightful for me as well, and I've I've known you for so long. This is uh, just wild. And I think what really sticks with me, um, and I and I hope it does for everyone that that listens to the pod, um, you're you saying your naive ambition that is just that is very inspiring and i think um for me to even hear that with doing this for so long it's it's the total truth it's like yeah you just surround yourself by people too that will will take on your naive ambition and they you know they feel it and you feel it and then things can happen so uh that's that's great thank you for sharing that that's awesome yeah yeah thanks for having me it's fun i don't get to do this ever um, <laughs> so it's fun 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 being on the other side of the camera and really fun to go back to this period of time because i can't say it enough times i know i've said it a lot through this but i reference pearl jam every day one way or another in what i do now uh, i learned so much from being around them i'm such a huge fan of their career and, and their music and so it's, it's been really fun to do it, a little bit of a deep dive back into this period of time. So thank you for having me. Now it's your turn. Post your thoughts on the Jamily Matters Facebook page or send an email to jamilymatters at gmail.com.